welcome to Colcast episode nine. I'm your host, Logan, and today on the show we have Mr. Brad Woodward. Howdy. Hello, Brad. <laughs> How you doing, Logan? <laughs> Good, man. I'm excited to have you on. Uh, we were talking earlier about like episode plans and I've wanted to talk to you because I like talking to you. Yeah. Uh, I had a lot of fun with you in uh, Vegas, of course, teaching Black Hat and Black Hat Europe too. So yeah, New York City. It's always a good time with yep. Mr. Brad. So first things first, I want to get your hot take on the Pentagon. Brad and Logan proceed to disclose top secret information regarding aliens, teleportation, mind control, and more. In the interest of their safety, this has been edited out by machine learning algorithms. Please enjoy the remainder of this episode of Colecast. Even the cutting edge experts are still figuring out how it works. Oh, yeah. It's such a whole different ball game of how technology is going right. to go now. It's sort of like when you uh, you go to a restaurant, you order the food, it comes out fantastically. But then when you go back and look in the kitchen, it's like, this is... <laughs> this puts it into perspective, really. I don't know how these guys cobbled this stuff together, but right. it's amazing. Right. <laughs> well, and it's going to totally change like a lot of the career field of of people going into technology. Like people that we're planning on being traditional developers are now going to have to start learning. Okay, wait, we're not developing things anymore the way we have been for the last like 20 years. Right. It's just like you're interacting with essentially what's APIs for computer hardware. Right. Like all these different services like DynamoDB and stuff are just like ways of saying, okay, I need this specialized component. How am mm -hmm. I going to make the components I need work together the right way? Right. Which is weird to or me. <laughs> throwing away old frameworks or you know programming languages platforms that sort of thing because you're used to just having a computer that's on all the time and with companies realizing the benefit of shifting to serverless they have to change how they're doing things mm -hmm. uh i've been working on that solutions architect certification oh yeah learning a ton but i'm just realizing how much more there is to learn yeah <laughs> The uh, Solutions Architect Associate covers mo like the basic services like EC2, IAM, yeah. S3. But when you go into the console, look at the dashboard, it's like, oh, oh no. Right. <laughs> Your yeah. Cognito stuff with NPK that you did has me really intrigued. Like, uh, how do you make all that? Or I guess, how did you make that all work? Uh, it was a lot of time and effort. I knew that Cognito existed and I understood some of the capabilities for it and I was really excited to try it. So NPK was more or less just an excuse to try out, <laughs> to build something with NPK for the first time, uh, or sorry, build something with Cognito for the first time. It turned out really well. It was a really fascinating service to learn and it's got a lot of ins and outs. I didn't use most of what it can do. Uh, I ended up just using the most simple components of it, but I'm really fascinated with it. And I think it's, it has the opportunity to change a lot of things in the future. And I think just most people don't know what power it holds. Yeah. Uh, from my understanding, I mean, it allows you to have like a single sign on for pretty much every service AWS offers and right. you can sort of like aggregate all these different accounts. I'm still trying to figure out like, could you give users different billing things? I don't know. So it's effectively federated identity as a service. So you can offload identity federation through other providers. You can do it through Google or Amazon or Microsoft or SAML if you have an on-premise AD and funnel that all through Cognito. The cool thing about Cognito is that the security principles that come out the other side of it can have IAM roles attached to them. So they can have permissions to perform actions 
in your AWS account. So if you combine that with things like policy variables in S3 or in DynamoDB, you can give users the ability to directly interact with some subset of objects that only they control. That's super interesting, yeah, in terms of potential. Yeah. How long have you been following cloud technology? Only since about, I want to say I got started with AWS at very first in 2013. Okay. And it was very low level. At the time, I was really focused on DevOps. I was still an engineer at the time. It was before I had moved to the security field. And I had known about this cool tool that Canonical put out. Okay. You know, Canonical is the folks who made Ubuntu. They had created this tool that was really, really awesome called Juju. And it's sort of like, if you think like Puppet or mm -hmm. Chef or Ansible or something like that, those all focus on just configuring some device, right? Some computer to do a certain thing. Juju is, they called it service orchestration. Okay. So you could create the concept of a MySQL database or create the concept of a web server. And then you can just drop these things on a canvas connect them up so the web server knows how to consume the MySQL database. And then you can just scale. If you need three more web servers, you just tell it to scale to three or tell it to scale to 30 and it just does it. So it's this really cool layover that you could put on AWS, for example, to just have sort of an infinitely scalable little infrastructure of your own for whatever you were doing. So that's why I got started with AWS was on the DevOps side and just kept having ideas for new projects to try new services and stuff. And that got me to here. That is so cool. Uh, scalability is one of the, the biggest things about the cloud that I think is really interesting and has a lot of like, uh, like can just really change companies adoption, right? Cause it just eliminates the need to buy all this hardware and set it up. You start small and you, right. just, you need, you get what you need, but it's also kind of scary in terms of like experimentation for me. Like I know, one of the best ways to study for certifications and just like to learn in general is through getting your hands on stuff. Mm -hmm. So I'm in the AWS console, I'm making S3 buckets, I'm setting up IAM groups. I haven't even touched auto scaling or uh, Beanstalk or whatever it's called, like, right. because I'm scared to death that I'm going to mess it up and accidentally <laughs> have to pay like hundreds of dollars to Amazon. Right. Like, oh, whoops, I accidentally created. I, did you run into any issues like that when you were making NPK? I didn't, fortunately. So most of NPK is built to be serverless. And okay. the majority of the costs that you're likely to encounter in AWS are going to be with EC2. Mm -hmm. So most people don't know how to consume anything in AWS without using EC2. In fact, if you talk to most people, this is a pro tip for anybody who's going to try and apply here and claim to have AWS skills. Don't use the word instance in the mm. first sentence you say when I ask you what you know about AWS. So... <laughs> Uh, most folks think that AWS is just VMware running on somebody else's servers, which is effectively what Azure and Google Cloud and IBM Cloud are. Yeah. AWS isn't. Avoiding EC2 gives you a lot of power to do all sorts of things in kind of more creative ways that are also more cost effective. So I'll give you an example of the first project that I did. And this is something that I tell everybody to do when they're first getting started with AWS. So here at Coal Fire, there are lots of folks, especially in labs, who have blogs that they run. Mm -hmm. 
right? They're pushing the boundaries on new research. They come across new novel attack techniques. They want to document these for posterity. So they have a cool little thing. From what every once in a while, somebody's little WordPress site that's running on a T2 micro in AWS gets reddited or slash dotted, if slash dot's still a thing, and it just gets crushed. And then nobody gets to read their article because their little web server gets over overrun. Mm-hmm. So something that I suggested to at least three folks here, and I think a couple might have done it, is to turn their WordPress site into a static website hosted in S3 through a CloudFront distribution. That way you get free SSL certificates without having to mess with Let's Encrypt. It's just automatic and renews itself. You have CloudFront vending this all, and it's backed by S3, which makes it unhackable. You can leave your WordPress site up for 10 years without ever updating it, but there's no actual PHP running in the back end, so mm-hmm. nobody can do anything to it. WP scan will throw out critical vulnerabilities left and right, but you can't do anything, so it's kind of <laughs> nice. But the best part about that is that it costs you a couple of cents per month to run this thing, and if it goes viral on Reddit because of some cool thing that you posted, you don't even notice and everybody gets it super fast because frankly, the internet's not going to overwhelm Amazon. Mm-hmm. And you get these guarantees of like availability. I mean, right. 99 point, it's 11 nines or something like nine nines. It's four nines of availability and 11 nines of durability. That's wild that they yeah. can guarantee those, mm-hmm. those numbers. It's uh, pretty cool. How long do you know how long Amazon's been in the cloud game? Cause a lot of people don't even know when you mention AWS that it's Amazon. I actually don't for sure. I want to say they've been around since at least 2006 because wow. looking at API documentation, you can see version dates on some of that stuff. And I think the earliest I've seen is 2006 on those. Wow. Um, so what's next for you in cloud stuff? I mean, are you still doing uh, like technical certifications? I know you're in like a leadership role now, right? I am. So most of my focus is staying around AWS. I There's a lot of sense that cloud skills translate between different hyperscale cloud providers. And the reality is they simply don't. For the simpler things, maybe, right? There's an equivalent to compute. There's an equivalent to blob storage, an equivalent to databases, that sort of thing. So at the, at the highest level concepts, it's simple enough. But AWS has some things that none of the other cloud providers have that give it a lot of extensibility. So I'm kind of staying in this. It's sort of like focusing on Linux versus focusing on Windows. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't translate. So I'm sticking in AWS. There's not any additional certifications beyond what I have. What? Yeah. Really? At least not that I'm interested in. I mean, there's like, I could get the Alexa skill builder certification if I wanted, but I've got the the security specialization. I've got the, the security architect professional. I would really love to see them do something advanced with IAM because I feel like IAM is a skill set that is really important. Yeah. And people doing IAM wrong is how Capital One happens. Yeah, star star on these uh, these keys. Just not understanding how roles can be used, and then you end up with SSRF that can list buckets when it should never have the ability to do that. Yeah, when you first showed me the metadata stuff, the metadata instance, uh, SSRF thing, I was like, I I didn't understand it at all at first. I was like, okay, that's cool. You can get some information. But the potential there for further compromise is incredible. Right. 
and I'll never forget that IP. It's too catchy. 169-254, 169-254. Right. They picked a good one. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, the funny part about that is we have a an R&D project in the works right now for Ooh. an even more advanced version of what is fundamentally the same type of attack. Okay. So that the SSRF to EC2 instance metadata is a pretty commonly known attack type. It's the metadata is there. You know that every once in a while there are roles there. That's the gig. There was a presentation that I saw at Black Hat that was really amazing. It was an internet scale analysis of AWS Cognito. Oh. So, of course, seeing Cognito, I go in and sit on that because I used Cognito for NPK. I was curious to see what other people did wrong. Mm -hmm. And the presenter, uh, his name was Andre Riancho. I know that because I was I hit him up afterwards to kind of chat about this a little bit. He what he did was took a look at Cognito and Cognito has this concept of authenticated and unauthenticated security principles. So users can can get a security context from Cognito without logging in and then they become unauthenticated. So all you have to do is just ask for creds from the security pool or the identity pool and it will send them back unauthenticated. So you have a role in IAM that has permissions for that. And what he noticed is that people are bad at IAM. They're probably going to put way too many permissions in these things, mm -hmm. not realizing what they're putting at risk. So he just, he, in his words, he grepped the internet for <laughs> identity pool IDs for Cognito and just requested unauthenticated credentials and then did a little bit of work to see what level of permissions they have. And he did this in conjunction with AWS application security. So it was all on the level. But he found it was tens of thousands of exposed resources just because people had un unauthenticated permissions through Cognito. So we have a, uh, an R&D effort that's been approved, but it hasn't started yet to look at the authenticated side of that to see how we might be able to attack federated identity and potentially get authenticated contexts that have even more permissions. Wow. Yeah. And on, on an internet scale too, that's mm -hmm. impressive. That actually brings up another question I wanted to ask you about uh, the future of the cloud, right? You mentioned that he was able to do this uh, research because he had permission from AWS, mm -hmm. but these were other companies' websites, right? They were just hosted in AWS. So what's your take on the legality and like the ethics of who truly owns this data? I mean, if I make a website in AWS, can AWS give permission to a third party to attack my website? Presumably no. <clears throat> so really what they were doing with this is he, he was kind of standing back looking at it from the perspective of this is called unauthenticated. I'm not sending credentials because the, okay. the request to get to, to, to get credentials back from Cognito unauthenticated doesn't ask for creds. You just, or doesn't provide creds. It just sends creds back. So he did that and he also wouldn't read any data from any of these data sources. He would just check to see if you could list tables in DynamoDB, if you okay. could list buckets in an account. Not actually go and read those? Right. Okay. Not actually access any of the data within them. So I can't say whether or not that's e even on that doesn't constitute unauth unauthorized access for CFAA. I'm not going to go there. But um, the it's hard to say. 
ultimately it's just who you upset and how much money they have and how much they want to make your life suck <laughs> how much of the internet they own really but, right and that's one thing that i feel like a lot of people rightfully so uh, are suspicious of the cloud for is you know you have all these organizations like facebook that say if you post a picture on our social media platform we now have the legal rights to this picture and I'm sure a lot of organizations are skeptical of the cloud for that exact reason. Well, if I put all of our com customer data in AWS, like even if you assume full trust of AWS, that's still another person or entity right. that has access to this data. So I don't know if other cloud providers do this. I'm sure they do. But one thing that AWS does that I really like is they don't trust themselves, which is really apparent in how they design their security architecture. And I really, really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. But if that's the first thing, the second is that they don't assume their customers trust them. So you have the ability to do additional encryption on anything that you're uploading or anything that you're interacting with. So in such a way that you have the private key, AWS doesn't. So even if they had access to the data that you're uploading, they don't have access to your encryption keys. They have HSMs that are FIPS compliant where you can't recover the private key. It's just who has access to the encryption functions. So if you trust that sort of thing, some healthcare institutions have to do that for HIPAA and whatnot. But I like that they make it possible for you to show whatever level of trust you're comfortable with in your risk profile. That is cool. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, I saw in this architect cert, uh, it's like you can use KMS or you can use their built-in encryption like for the service. Right. Or you can just encrypt it yourself and throw it in. Do you, are you aware of any like cloud computing quantum updates? Like is AWS going to create like a quantum service where you can rent out a quantum computer? <laughs> I mean, that would be incredible. So the closest thing to that that AWS has right now has nothing to do with quantum computing. It just has quantum in the name, which uh, is okay. their, their quantum ledger database, which quantum is actually ledger. a pretty cool service in hindsight. But that's a different discussion for a different time. As far as I'm aware, there aren't any public cloud providers that are making quantum computers available. I know I've heard that Google has D-Wave computers and they're, they make them accessible for some research projects. Okay. But I don't know if the, that's outside of the organization or just their own internal research projects. Did you read the supremacy paper they released like earlier I this did. week? I don't remember much about it, but I did read through it. Basically uh, what I got was just they were able to prove that in certain circumstances they have a quantum computer that can do certain things that right. other ones can't. So I know the biggest fear associated with the proliferation of quantum compute capability is Shor's algorithm and attacks yep. against RSA. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty big threat on the basis that if they if it becomes possible to have enough qubits to actually do Shor's algorithm, which I believe is twice the key length is what you need. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So a 2048-bit key would fall to 4096 qubit computers. Oh, that's way far in the future. Well, Not necessarily. <laughs> yeah, it's exponential growth thing right. of Well, technology. the last I heard was that Google's computer, Google's quantum computer, the D waves that they have now are 2000 qubits. Are you serious? Yeah. I thought it was something like 50. I could be wrong. Uh, 2000. Or be. D wave could be lying on their website. Who That's knows? true. Or D it could be like a special <laughs> type of qubit and they're spinning it a certain right. way to make it sound like they're. Well, I know IBM was doing this thing where they were virtualizing quantum computers. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't understand that at all. And they were like, hey, we can emulate a 62-qubit quantum computer with just traditional compute power. It's like, that's cool, but it's exponential how much RAM you need. Yeah. So, like, 2 to the 62 is reasonable. 2 to the 65 isn't now. Yeah, you're talking double the amount. <laughs> eight, eight times more to get three more qubits. Yeah. You know? Oh, my God. Um, yeah, uh, I, I kind of want to just maybe go into the uh, quantum computing fears with RSA a bit more. Okay. Uh, like, just for people that are listening that don't understand it, because I find that terrifying. So do I. <laughs> like you were saying about RSA, I mean, like, a lot of our encryption is based around the idea that you have to factor some very, very large prime numbers. Like take a, what is it, like 200-digit prime number uh, and multiply it by another 200-digit prime number, and you have a extremely large number that people look at and they go, that's pretty much prime, and it would take forever to get through like what those two factors are. Right. And no, like traditional computers just can't calculate that stuff very well. I mean, right. it would take like Summit, the world's biggest supercomputer, I think it was like 10,000 years to figure out. That. Yeah, insane <laughs> amounts of time. Right. And quantum computers are like, oh, well, let's figure it out in a couple minutes. No big deal. So the comparison that was drawn was that with Shor's algorithm and a, a fully capable quantum computer, the amount of effort that it would take to derive the private key from an RSA public key is about as much effort as a traditional ta computer takes to generate the key pair. <laughs> oh, no. Right. <laughs> wow. So rip that. What about uh, AES? I mean, I don't know how AES works, I guess, at a technical level. AES is symmetric, so there's no way to derive the key from something else. Okay. So RSA is asymmetric, so you have the, pro the public and private key. And the whole idea is that the public key isn't secret. You can share the public key with anybody. Mm -hmm. The problem with, or the, the concern that's raised with Shor's algorithm is that given a private key, you can recover, or given the public key, you can recover the private key. With enough trivially. computing power, right? Trivially. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Well, right. switch to AES, I guess. But well, I mean, there's just some ways AES that... is symmetric, so that's the whole problem. Yeah. With AES, it doesn't solve the same problem. I know that there are quantum-safe encryption mechanisms, so that don't rely on the discrete logarithm problem. Okay. But I think, I think elliptic curve. I don't remember if elliptic curve is, but there are a couple of others that have been suggested as ways to do that. The thing that bothers me most is that. The encryption that I rely on, I use GPG, I use smart cards, because mm -hmm. smart cards are a beautiful solution to this problem that have been around for 20 years. You don't need no passwords, just throw that card in. Right. <laughs> well, the thing I'm always worried about is I don't really trust my own computer either. Oh. Right? I don't like my private keys to be on my own machine, because if it gets compromised, somebody gets my keys, and now who knows what happens with that. Mm -hmm. So you generate the keys on an offline computer, you put it on a smart card. The whole point of a smart card is you can't recover the private key. That's the idea. But it still exposes the encryption functions. So I can plug in the smart card and sign something or plug in the smart card and encrypt something. So the downside of that is that smart cards that are generally available, like commodity smart cards right now, can't handle anything other than RSA. So... <laughs> As soon as quantum computers hit that point, all these 
smart cards that are out there are just kind of going to become useless. Yeah, throw them in the trash, get new ones with right. new technology. That, yeah. Shell out a couple hundred bucks to protect your private keys. Goodness. Because that's life now. <laughs> and then who knows, like, with quantum computers, how much quicker research projects on technology are going to go. Like, you're going to have something new that can bust those new cards even quicker. <laughs> right. Who even knows? Yeah. It's very interesting uh, where we can go from here. You said you have every non-specialty AWS cert right now? No. Like, so I just, there's not a further step beyond what I have in, oh, the, in okay, my gotcha. area of focus. So for example, I don't have the DevOps Pro. Okay. I had the SysOps Associate for a while, but it was kind of in a focus I didn't, I was moving away from. Okay. So SysOps I had gotten while I was still an engineer and still focused on DevOps and DevOps Pro understandably is more in that direction. Okay. Well, so I want some uh, information, like recommendations from you, I guess, right. on where I should go from here with certifications. Because right now I'm working on Solutions Architect Associate. And uh, to be honest, I don't really understand the difference uh, fundamentally between SysOps, DevOps, architecture, enough to know what I should start focusing on. Uh, I imagine since I'm going Architect Associate, a next logical step would be Architect Pro, and then of course security, since I work in computer security. But what is the difference really between SysOps, DevOps, architecture? So SysOps and DevOps are in the same certification path. Okay. So SysOps upgrades to DevOps. Okay. Or rather, SysOps Associate upgrades to DevOps Pro. So those are in the same vein around automation for things like DevOps pipelines, code deployments. Okay. Uh, Things like that, where it's solving traditional IT problems using cloud solutions that are intended to be more automated through deployment of a product. Solutions Architect is more around understanding the infrastructure and how the different things integrate so that you can build more complex environments using the components in AWS as opposed to trying to automate a deployment of something you created into AWS. So mm -hmm. uh, Solutions Architect is more around the infrastructure itself and less around how to get something into the infrastructure. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I guess, would you recommend for me to get the security certification next or just go with Architect Pro? I think Architect Pro would have the most benefit. Okay. There are a lot of things that they talk about that, that go above and beyond when you shift from associate to professional that are really useful. I'm a little disappointed in how little they focus on IAM, given that IAM, as far as I'm concerned, IAM is what differentiates AWS from all of their competitors. Oh, wow. There's really nothing like that in Google Cloud or Azure from what I've seen. But... They focus on it enough that you can have a fundamental idea of what's going on, and then you can build amazing things with it from there. The security specialty was a little underwhelming. I just, I heard that it was there. I learned that there was a testing center about two miles from my house. So I just oh, nice. scheduled the $150 exam because I had, turns out every time that you pass an exam, you get a half off coupon for your next exam Oh wow! <laughs> in AWS. And I didn't know that. So I just had ones laying around. So I was like, hey, I'll just spend the 150 bucks and just go try the exam for the, the security specialty and just went and sat and passed it. <laughs> And they were asking questions about like Active Directory security and oh, how to weird. do things on domain controllers and like weird esoteric networking questions that didn't seem terribly 
relevant to a security specialty, but huh. Yeah. Uh, it, isn't a passing score like 65 or something for those certifications? I don't think they, the last time that I looked, they didn't publish what a passing score was. Oh, okay. And the interesting thing about it was that you could fail with a higher score than what somebody else passed with. <laughs> because the, apparently, supposedly, allegedly, the way that they determine whether or not you pass is using AI. <laughs> they use their own AWS machine yeah. learning stuff. They got SageMaker to make sure you're a sage before <laughs> they give you the cert. I don't know. But yeah, machine learning to make sure that you actually know what you're doing before they give you the cert, which I kind of like. I think it's a, a novel idea. Yeah. I mean, how would you even, are they tracking like big data type stuff like mouse movements and like there's a webcam that tracks your eyes and how you dart from different answers? They haven't I have disclosed no idea. It? Yeah. They, they do their own magic. That is incredible. But I do have to say that out of, so I have lots of certs. Okay. Right. I have a lot of experience taking certification exams and I have to say that AWS's certification exams are probably the best out of any of them that I've taken, uh, in terms of actually validating you have the real skill. So I know so many people who have Microsoft certs that got them because they just got exam dumps and memorized the answers and went and took them. And now they don't know anything, but they have the cert, right? Mm -hmm. With AWS, you can't do that because they have so many potential answers to something and they switch it all up so frequently that you can't realistically do that. And the, the questions that they ask, so just to prep, have, do you have the associate yet? No, I'm taking it December 5th. Okay. So the fun part about that, the associate's not quite so bad, but the pro is brutal. I've heard. In the sense that every question is a paragraph or two. Oh. It's a large word problem. And every answer is a paragraph or two. And they feel remarkably similar. So in the associate, there might be one that you can just throw away. But in the pro exam, every single one is a perfectly valid answer. You just have to know which one is the right answer, which one is the best answer. The best strategic use of the different right. services they offer. Which, which one is the cheapest or the most cost effective uh. or the most secure or the most resilient or whatever in this design. That sounds intense. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I was sweating. <laughs> uh, what about the security certs? Are those, I mean, you mentioned like weird AD questions, but for the most part, is it pretty straightforward on security for concepts? For the AWS one? Yeah, yeah. I would say generally, yeah, it wasn't, they didn't have left field questions. Okay. They had things that maybe you wouldn't expect to run into on an AWS certification exam, like questions about domain controllers, mm -hmm. but it was relevant enough Okay. that I feel like if somebody has the designation of AWS security specialty, that they at least have the fundamentals. Nice. Um, what would you recommend in the way of like study materials? I mean, obviously hands-on experience uh, in the cloud building stuff is great. Right. Uh, what about like websites? I'm using a cloud guru mm -hmm. recommended to me by Jack Hooker. Is there anything else that you would really recommend as a top level study material? So what I used when I was doing mine was Linux Academy. Oh, okay. At the time, Linux Academy was brand new. The dude who founded it was the guy who was doing the majority of the content. I thought the content was really good. It was scripted, so it was very prescriptive in terms of what they were focusing on, what details they provided. There was less anecdotal 
stuff, less of the narrator just being excited and being like, hey guys, today we're going <laughs> to um learn about this stuff, oh, no. <clears throat> which is frustrating to me when I'm listening to educational content and the speaker can't speak. Um, I was... Um... <laughs> right. You know, obviously. But <laughs> anyway, I did use a Cloud Guru for learning about KMS in particular because I just wanted to have somebody else explain it instead of me reading the documentation. And I have to say their content's pretty good. Okay. So either one of those will probably do you just fine, but it's no substitute for hands-on. So you can use the videos, you can use certification training stuff to get an understanding of it, but you really don't know it until you get your hands on it and go do something with it. Because you'll encounter weird error messages that you don't expect or weird situations that you weren't aware of or learn, oh, I can only send SMS messages through the simple notification service if it's in US East One. I didn't know that. Oh. So <laughs> those are the sorts of things that you only learn from doing. Okay. Yeah, I feel like the biggest hurdle for me when I first started working on cloud stuff was just some of the abstract concepts that I wasn't aware of, like uh, databases for a long time. I always just thought were things like, you know, oh, you have a table with your first and last name and how long you've worked at the company and your pay rate and all this stuff. That's all databases are for. I had no idea about things like Redshift and right. like how those are still a database, but they're fundamentally different, like OLTP versus OLAP. Right. It's weird to me. And then you get something like DynamoDB where your access pattern matters. So I'm used to, I came from an area where the first database I learned was MySQL. Just a typical relational database. You can put whatever you want in it. You can query it however you want. You can write these huge disgusting queries that do huge <laughs> disgusting things and return huge disgusting data sets. But it doesn't really matter. It's not a huge deal to do it wrong. Whereas with DynamoDB, if you access it wrong, you're going to pay a ton of money because <laughs> you designed your data set wrong and you're accessing it wrong. So it has to, the, the interesting thing about DynamoDB, for those who don't know, is you pay based on the amount of data that the server processes for your request, not how much it returns. It's how much data it has to read in order to give you the results back for your query, which is really fascinating. So that means if you design your access pattern wrong and it has to scan your entire database in order to return results, you're paying for gigabytes of access on every single request instead of a couple K. Scary. So now it's a million times more expensive because you screwed it up. The weird stuff on pricing like that is what freaks me out too much to really get the, the <laughs> a drive to go in and experiment. Like I was finding out about Lambda pricing too. Mm -hmm. uh, it's so counterintuitive sometimes. Like if you have a problem that you want to throw into Lambda and you think, okay, I want to keep this cheap. I should give it as little memory as possible mm -hmm. for this Lambda function. But it, because you gave it such little memory, it takes longer for it to calculate. Right. Part of the Lambda pricing is based on how long it takes to calculate. And now right. you're paying more money. Whereas if you would have just given the thing more memory, it would be cheaper because it took less time to calculate. Right. It's just weird. <laughs> so that's that's an interesting thing about Lambda is that the amount of CPU that it gets is based on how much memory you give it. Weird. So I have run into that before where it was it was cheaper to give it more <laughs> per invocation. So it would take less time. But usually you're not going to run into that. And it doesn't really matter anyway, because for Lambda in particular, free tier forever is 3.2 billion invocations per month. So you're doing all right. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm not doing anything too extreme with <laughs> Lambda. Where I'm calling right. billions of functions and a right. month. Uh, I think the most the the highest number of Lambda in, Lambda invocations I've ever had in a single month was fifty seven thousand. Oh wow! And you were probably like going hard on some NPK experiment yeah. test stuff, right? Uh, this was on a, a previous thing that I built. It was nice. the first time I'd ever tried to build a static website that interacts with AWS directly. Mm. It was this dumb little thing I made to uh, query World of Warcraft character data from their the Blizzard API and like store and compare it and graph it over time. Nice. Like you could uh, track who was highest level and who had the best gear. Or something. It was like track, track your progress towards achievements and track like the maximum amount of gold that you've ever had or like how much <laughs> you've collected over time. That's and reputation cool. changes. Yeah, it was kind of fun. Did but, it use like Cognito or anything to let people log in to their account through you? Or did they have to still log in through Blizzard and like give you an API key or something? They didn't even have to log in. You could just go put in a character and a realm oh, and it would just okay. go to the Blizzard okay. APIs and pull that data and then start tracking it. Okay. So as soon as you put in a character, it starts tracking it forever. Uh, and it costs, I want to say that that entire project to have that running in production cost me seven cents a month. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. So for people looking to get started with the cloud that haven't touched it at all, it's still like weird to them. Where would you recommend they start? Uh, just EC2 instances or? Actually, I would say no. Really? I feel like EC2 instances are a good way to dissuade yourself from actually doing anything with it. So there's this weird thing that happens where you look at the cost of an EC2 instance per hour mm. and you're like, oh man, this is going to cost me seven cents an hour. Like this is terrifying. This is going to, I'm going to forget that it's there and it's going to run for four days and it's going to cost me like a dollar and a half. This is, <laughs> no. I can't, I can't deal with this. Like people get so stressed out about the cost of a T2 micro over the course of a month. Mm -hmm. And then they spin it up, they do something with it for 20 minutes and then they tear it down. And there's, they have to take some time to get over the adrenaline rush of having just done that. And I don't know why that's the case. Just people will go perfectly. and just like spend 14 bucks at Burger King or something and not even think twice about it. But because of that, I feel like EC2 is something that folks should avoid for starters okay. and look at other services because really the power of AWS comes from the other services. EC2 is just VMware running on somebody else's computer effectively. Yeah, I know there's more to it than that, but that's the closest you get. The other services are where the the actual power comes from. So if you learn to do interesting things with S3 and SQS and SNS and Lambda, you can do really powerful things that make you really valuable to prospective employers, which I think is the reason people are playing with AWS. So do that instead. Nice. All right. So, uh, off the topic of cloud stuff, I okay. wanted to also talk to you about uh, some leadership ideas Okay. Uh, because you recommended to me and we've talked in the past, like when we were training together, uh, just books that you were reading and stuff like Robert Greene, you recommended books. You recommended to me this Netflix special about like a social engineering magician idea. Oh, man. So, yeah. I mean, have you been up to anything in that realm recently? Like you reading anything or working on anything like that? Uh, not so much. I've shifted off of the leadership stuff more recently, but an interesting thing that proved to be surprisingly beneficial was a focus in sales skill development. Okay. Because when you're talking about leadership, it fundamentally boils down to, to influence mm -hmm. and, and 
helping other people and developing other people and kind of pushing towards a common goal. And sales has a lot in common with that, where you're trying to get everybody on the same page and make sure you understand what somebody's needs are and helping develop a solution for that. So the book I listened to that was probably the most profound was called the challenger sale. And I was actually listening to it, um, at DEF CON two years ago while we were all hanging out at the castles. Oh, nice. Um, I just had it on audiobook format. I was listening to it and it was really good. There was a couple there were a couple of other books that I listened to as well. Uh Influence by Robert Cialdini was really amazing and it really points at some fascinating things about how human psychology works in terms of how we make decisions. Mm-hmm. That if you understand how that works, you can it's a lot easier to get folks on the same page and moving towards a common goal. So things like that are really beneficial and it's more about how to solve other people's problems in a direction that helps to solve yours. That's interesting. I, uh, I've also really gotten into this whole realm of like human behavior psychology recently, uh, because you recommended it and a few other people like were telling me all these book recommendations, David, uh, P Montesi recommended me how to win friends and influence people, right. which I have of course heard of prior. I mean, it's like a famous book, but it always just sounded like weird and fake like by reading it you're now a manipulator but that's not really the idea (laughs) no it's it's like you're trying to learn how to properly interact with people right which i feel like i kind of need and a lot of people in this industry need because we we were all stem kids right like we were playing with computers our whole life we weren't necessarily around with the other kids learning what it means to be like a a nice person sometimes right if you're if you're living a life where you like get in arguments a lot with people and you're like, oh, these dummies are frustrating. It's like maybe it's you. Maybe you don't understand right. how to win people to your way of thinking. Right. <laughs> so I've enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. Influence is the it, name of that one you read. Huh? Influence is really good. OK. So for folks who grow, grew up in a technical background or who have a lot of background in just kind of logic and fo- mathematics, STEM, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, grew up as a nerd like me. One of the things that was really beneficial, there was a book called Emotional Intelligence that really opened my eyes to a lot of things that I had done wrong over the course of my life. It's not for the faint of heart if you're if you came from that kind of background, because you'll be listening to it and it's like, that's what that social interaction was supposed to mean. Yep. Or even worse for folks like us is Oh, she was hitting on me. Like <laughs> I had no idea. I right. was about to get a promotion. Like. <laughs> right. Uh, well, not the one who was hitting on me wasn't going to give me a promotion. No well, worries there. But like separate instances, though. I mean, right. yeah, like you totally. start realizing that you've screwed up in a right. lot of social interactions. Right. But the first step to getting better is to recognize where you fell short. Mm-hmm. And that was one that was really beneficial. And I think really there's some good personal development to be had in that, especially if you're coming from an area where you're focused on engineering and moving into an, a position where you're interacting with people more. So that transition into leadership is those skills come in very handy. Nice. Yeah. Um, I think that that's something that a lot of people are just, I don't know for the, for the longest time I've always been like, no way I'm a hacker forever. Right. Um, but I think I've started to sort of relate it back to this desire to hack because by sort of learning how people work, you're kind of people hacking. It's like social engineering. You're hacking the planet, right. as they say, uh, because you're hacking society in a way to sort of like work to the way that you know how to interact with it. It's, right. it's a really weird idea. Well, and if, an interesting part of that is that it's very similar to when you're doing penetration testing. So people look at the skill sets that we develop as a part of our role 
in security, doing offensive security, and they think these skills are really dangerous. <clears throat> you can do some really detrimental things and cause a lot of havoc. And that's true. And it ultimately comes down to who the person is and how disciplined they are to use their powers for good. The mm -hmm. same is true when you learn about psychology and influence and how to, how to change people's way of thinking is you can use it for good or you can use it for evil. So this actually ties in really well to that Netflix special that I was telling you about. Yeah. There are two, there were two different movies or short, uh, programs that were created on Netflix. Both of them were done by Darren Brown, who's sort of a mentalist um, magician. And all of his work is focused on a lot of understanding of psychology, kind of con man type skills that he uses in magic. And he has two programs. One of them is called The Push, and it's on Netflix. And the whole idea was to see if they could social engineer somebody into committing murder, <laughs> which was crazy. So freaky. And if you have any appreciation of psychology and you watch this, you pick up on things that they don't make a big deal out of. And it's horrifying the things <laughs> that they were pulling out. But then there was a second one where he demonstrates that these same things can be used for good. And it was called, um, oh man, I'm going to forget what it was called. Is it the martyr or? Oh yeah, that sounds familiar. I think yeah, that was right. Something we were... to that effect where the intent was to take somebody who had a deeply rooted hatred of another group of people it's like a nazi or something right like a it, Nazi, sort of a it, in a sense okay sort of not quite to that not quite that extreme but um had a hatred in particular of immigrants in this particular case mm. so then the goal of this program was to see if they could get this guy to give up his own life in protection of a stranger in this group from this group of people fascinating so it was crazy to watch how those things go. And you realize just like any other skill set, you can use it for good or use it for evil. So it just comes down to who you are and what you want to accomplish with it. Hack the planet, dude. Right. That's, <laughs> I was thinking about that this morning. I was like, wow, this really is just a uh, same sort of field. Just computers versus people. Reinvent and re all this other stuff. Reinforce. Or, reinforce. Was the other one earlier this year. Is it just those two or are there other... Cons Those are the only two that I'm aware of. Okay. Reinforce, this year was the first one that they did, and it was in Boston. Uh, reinvent is something they've been doing for several years now, and it's huge. Mm. Most people don't realize just how massive Reinvent is. So you've been to DEF CON. Yeah. You've seen how crazy that is. So in 2018, because I was looking at statistics for this for last year, in 2018, there were 20,000 people that went to DEF CON. 20,000, you said? 20,000. 20,000, okay. And you remember how chaotic that was. Yeah, how incredibly just packed. Massive group of people. For 2018, the number of attendees that went to reInvent was 50,000. <laughs> so, two and a half times the size of DEF CON. Wow. And where DEF CON was spread across two venues in 2018, reInvent was spread across seven. Oh, wow. So if you remember how much fun it was to get between different events that were at different hotels, imagine that times seven. Oh, my God. Where is it? Uh, where are all these? Where's reInvent? I guess Seattle? Reinvents in Vegas. Oh, it's also in Vegas? Oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah. Okay. Because I was thinking, well, at least you don't have to walk out in the hot sun like No, nope, you have to walk out in the hot sun. <laughs> I mean, it's December in Vegas, so okay. it's not August in Vegas, but... 
Yeah. It's still a long way to go and a lot of people and a lot of stuff going on. What sort of stuff is getting presented at reInvent? Is it just like novel ways of using AWS? So what we learned not that long ago is that one of the biggest pushes for reInvent is the deployment of or the announcement of new publicly available services. Oh. So new things that they've been working on over the course of the year, the developers and service teams that are putting these things together aspire to launch at reInvent. Because huh. that's their big thing where they can announce all these cool new services and they can make presentations about how these work or show cool novel ways to integrate them into existing workflows. And now people can use them. That's really cool. Yeah. So there's a lot of training. They do certification boot camps there. They have, you can take certification exams while you're there. They also have places where if you're a certified, if you're a professional level certification holder, they have like special lobbies for oh. just, just folks like you. <laughs> VIP. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very important professional. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So they've got that. And then they also have these new services that get deployed and like big social events. And that's cool. Yeah. Do we send people to reinvent? We've got a couple of folks that are going this year. When is it? December 1st through the 6th. Okay. I would so like coming to go up here really soon next year. I'd like to go 2020, I think, because I'm yeah. having a ton of fun with this whole cloud thing. Yeah. Like for a long time, I was like, oh, I want to stay away. That seems hard. That seems weird. But like the fact that it's hard and weird has me uh, like a passion reignited. Right. It's like a whole new career field, kind of. It's still yeah. the same. It's still computer security, consulting, uh, hacking, but it's a whole different ballgame of like how computers work. Right. And if you think about it, hard and weird is probably why what attracted you to the OSCP in the first place. Yeah, it was hard and it's weird. Like, and, yeah, it's yeah. like these are services I know nothing about. This is like somebody else's environment. I've never hacked something owned by somebody else before, whatever the situation <laughs> is. And it's like, I'm going to go solve this puzzle. I can go get somebody else's password. That's crazy to right, me. Right, yeah. exactly. And then when you start shifting over to the cloud, it's like, yeah, this is really weird. And it's dynamic and it's shifting and it's moving and it doesn't. It, it's not something that you can really put your hands around in its entirety, but it's really cool and you can do amazing things with it that nobody else can do. Oh, Eric brought water. Thanks, Eric. <laughs> I like to give Eric occasional shout outs on the on the recording <laughs> just so people know he exists. I can't record. I can't set up microphones. Um, I'm trying to do a nerd night presentation about the cloud. Because I think that uh, people in the security industry are just now starting to sort of figure out the cloud. People like technology specialists are still just starting to figure out the cloud. The general public has absolutely no clue. Nope. Um, and when they think about the cloud, I mean, usually they think, okay, I have an iCloud account where I store my photos. Right. Or whatever. And that's all their idea. Right. Um, so I think it would be really cool to get out to the public, general public, and sort of try to explain to them at a very high level, like what serverless architecture is. Right. Um, it's going to be a challenge though, because first you have to explain servered architecture and like right. some kind of esoteric computing concepts. But um, I have an idea. Have you ever heard of Nerd Night before? No. I think I might have talked about it on one episode before uh, to Nate, uh, but it's a thing that's done nationwide. And I think they might even have them in, in some other countries like, like the UK or whatever. Um, but it's just a meetup. Uh, they do them once a month, sometimes twice a month, where people in their respective fields all come together and essentially do like small casual TED Talks, like a quick 30-minute TED Talk on like, hey, I'm a, 
astronomer and we just have like a like a, when the total solar eclipse happened an astronomer traveled down to where they hit that full solar eclipse and took pictures and talked about it and okay. i learned a lot from seeing that talk people uh like music teachers talk, teaching teaching about like harmonies and how those all work it's super fascinating yeah and i've done one presentation before uh, just on like general privacy like for your average person password sanitization and using a vpn and stuff like that so I think cloud one would be cool. Yeah. But I just have a lot of learning to do and figuring out how to explain things <laughs> that I don't fully understand. <laughs> right. Like, well, it's funny you mentioned that because there was a, there's this extracurricular program that I like to support whenever I can. It's called business professionals of America. Oh I don't know yeah. If you've heard of that. Yeah, I have. I had, when I was in high school, I was a part of network design team with Steve Durham, who's actually on, uh, on the scans team. Here. That's too cool. And, we we were doing all sorts of stuff back then, but just a couple of years ago, I learned that one of my good friends uh, here in town, his little brother was in Business Professionals of America for Network Design Team and qualified for nationals just like I had. And I was like, this is awesome. You should put me in contact with him. I'll totally mentor him. So did that, helped him out, like helped him. He's now doing DevOps engineering with a big focus in AWS and all this kind of stuff, which is really cool. And then more recently, I tried to do that again for uh, another group and they sent me the whole idea behind this is that you're given what's effectively an RFP and you have to put together a proposal for how you're going to provide these services. Okay. And they sent me the proposal that they had up to that point that they had qualified for state using this proposal. And they're, one of the whole things was how are we going to use the cloud like give us a way that we can use the cloud for this thing that we're doing and their one line item in the proposal for how they were going to do that is we'll use azure for the cloud because it's five cents per gigabyte per month for storage or i, don't I understand. guess <laughs> right it's like okay this is a fundamental misunderstanding yeah. of what the cloud is it's not dropbox <laughs> right but that's what a lot of people think it is that's all that they think like it's just storing my pictures right. for them. Exactly. It's my iCloud that stores my pictures. Yeah. <laughs> so so yeah, you corrected it to, for them? Like yeah, you, you gave... Yeah. I, I gave them some guidance on what the cloud actually is <laughs> and that the cloud, in fact, is not five cents per gigabyte per month. <laughs> There's a lot more to it than right. gigabytes. Exactly. That's cool, though. Uh, but... To your point, I think there'd be a lot of benefit to kind of sharing that with other folks, because I think most people don't realize just how much power there is in that, even if they work in a field that could benefit from it immensely. Oh, yeah. What was their uh, updated proposal? Like, did you see after they had sort of revisited their idea of what the cloud was? Um, This group in particular didn't take advantage of my guidance as much as the first group that's a shame yeah so uh they they didn't make it past date that's still impressive though yeah uh my wife was in business professionals of america well we both went to the same vocational school concurrently enrolled in high school um and i was on cyber patriot and they didn't have a network design team that year they the guy that taught it for the last like three years went to a different school so i was like no but i found something else and she did uh, I can't remember what it was. It was like the design thing, not network design, but it was like drafting, I think, yeah. that she did. So, I, yeah, VPA is really cool. Yeah. I'm I'm thinking I've been thinking for a couple of years how awesome it would be to start an extracurricular program. Yeah. That's focused around higher technology and actually developing these skills 
in in kids before they make it to college mm-hmm. right because the the college focus on this is usually pretty low level and it's pretty outdated uh, just based off of what i saw from that the the kid that i was mentoring but also how cool would it be to start the high school hackers club yeah uh cyber patriot has middle school people now learning oh really about, yeah they have like a middle school division um and i met one kid that was like in seventh grade and he's like yeah i'm gonna hack and it's so cool that they're getting interested that early, but you just have to learn so much like yeah. to understand what the cloud is. You have to understand like what an IP address, like I didn't know what an IP address was until my first job out of college. Right. Or I guess I didn't understand how public IPs and private IPs were different. Right. I understood, you know, when you go in and do the subnetting worksheets, like different classes, but I didn't really understand what that meant. Right. So... It's just a and lot of work. <laughs> it's easy to forget how much knowledge goes into something as simple as I'm going to use this PEM file to SSH into this server. There's yeah. so much assumed knowledge. What in is that. a protocol in right. the first place? Like, like what do I, what's the IP? What do I, what is a PEM file? Why does it matter? Mm-hmm. Private what's, what's the username I have to log in with, which yeah. is always a question in EC2. Yep. Well, and just in general, like, uh, when I first got out of high school, my first job was just like a generic help desk job for a company. And I just had no idea what that could possibly entail. Like why could, uh, let's just use an example like Boeing. I don't want to give the real company away, but right. let's just say hypothetically it was Boeing. <laughs> Whatever it was, it wasn't Boeing. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't. Not, we'll, we'll call it not Boeing. We'll, okay. we'll say not Boeing there you go. the example. Uh, so I got this job at this help desk for not Boeing. And I was like, what am I going to be doing? Airplane stuff? I don't understand. The thought never occurred to me that a company like not Boeing could have servers where they have users and email and printers and things. Right. You just don't really think about that when you're a high school kid. Right. So it's interesting. Now we're kind of coming to this point. I'm actually curious to see if at some point in the near future, we're going to see healthcare institutions that start shifting away from technology. Really? Like go back yeah. to paper? So before I before I came to Coal Fire, I was working for a consulting firm that focused on security assessments for medical uh, and healthcare institutions, like huge hospitals, right? And the amount of money that they spend on EMRs and hardware and workstations and licenses and all this kind of stuff and personnel to maintain it and to be able to hold it to the level that they have to for HIPAA or high trust is huge, Right. Now, there are some benefits that they get from that. Supposedly, there's additional money that they're able to get from Medicare uh, as a part of this. But when you think about the cost associated with that and the risk associated with having electronic medical records compared to having runners that take stuff from your file cabinet room and run it around your campus, you could, pro- A, if somebody gets into your file, your storage room, they're not making off with 50 million patient records. Yeah. If it's all in paper, they can't carry that. Right. Much. Exactly. Yeah. So you're limiting your scope right there. <laughs> <clears throat> and B, all of this uh, work and effort and money that goes into maintaining technology goes away. That's true. Wow. And in reality, how much are you really losing? Because when you think about, um, you know, I'll, I'll just say based on the last couple of times that I've had to go to either urgent care or go to, you know, go to the doctor. 
you go and you're waiting in the, the room, even after they take you from the waiting room, you're still waiting there for five or 10 minutes for the doctor to show up, mm-hmm. which is plenty of time for the runner to bring your file over. Well, and a lot of times they make you <clears throat> fill out a bunch of stuff on paper anyway, right. brand new. Like so, you're obviously not storing it or using it. <laughs> right. So what's really lost here That's as a, a part of that, other than all the risk associated with having it be electronic? I wonder what other industries could benefit from that besides healthcare. Just, Matt, just let this thought marinate for a second. Imagine okay. that you show up for a job interview at a place and the company doesn't have computers. That would be terrifying. Like, it's just so novel. Right. But imagine how productive people are. Yeah. You're not browsing Reddit all day. Right. You're just writing on paper or... <laughs> like, you're just doing your job I'm because you don't have anything to trying to think of companies would even exist that way. Right. <laughs> But like there are manufacturing companies that could totally do that. Yeah. Right. You just have your stuff. You plug your nuts into your bolts and you ship off your crate full of levers or whatever you're making. Whatever you do. (laughs) And I'm sure that there are companies that could do that. And if you rolled in on something like that, you'd be like, no, these people are all sociopaths. Yeah. This is a 18th century. Right. Weirdo company. Don't want to work here. Yeah. But at the same time, they have. Right. Maybe they got the big brain going on. Right. Exactly. Huh. You're not going to get crypto lockered if you don't have a computer. Yeah. Do you think Do you think Jeff Bezos has this master plan of getting AWS to own like 90% of the internet and then he just crypto locks everybody? Ransomware? <laughs> ransomware the world? <laughs> the entire world is devastated uh, because they... I'm going to say that's not a part of his master plan. I think it's got to be. <laughs> I mean... I, I saw this uh, this thing literally just yesterday where it was Jeff Bezos as a kid. It was a little comic. Jeff Bezos as a kid and a career tutor was like, you can't be a dragon, Jeff. <laughs> and then 40 years later, it's like him Scrooge McDucking into this huge room of gold coins. <laughs> oh, that's <clears throat> funny. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's he's got it uh, got it headed that way. The guy, <laughs> he's up there. The richest guy now, I think. I think he might have crossed that threshold. Incredible. Yeah. And he's wanting to go to space now, blue or whatever it's called. Or Who doesn't? Yeah. Let's space be honest. Would be cool. Yeah. All the most powerful people in the world want to go to space because nobody else is there. Final frontier. Yeah. You right. Get, get away from all these people with all these exactly. computers. and Go mine asteroids and stuff. <laughs> Actually, that's a, that's a funny thing. You can kind of tell that there's, there's potential for that. I don't know. Not many people know about this, but have you heard of AWS Ground Station? Oh, yeah. You can control satellites, yeah. I guess, through the cloud. You can onboard satellites to be controlled through AWS now. Weird. <laughs> Could I? Is that a service that's publicly available? Mm-hmm. I can go in and launch a satellite if I pay enough money? Yeah. I think I think Jack was looking at it for <laughs> I bet stuff. Jack was. <laughs> because, of course, Jack is looking at that. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's too great. Yeah. Pretty cool, though. So if he wanted to do that, there's nothing really stopping him. He could just spin it up on AWS real quick. Yeah, a quick little $20 satellite launch. Do you know yeah. how much approximately they, they cost? Oh, they don't, they don't launch them. It's just to handle communications. Oh, So you okay. don't have to have your so own So you have array. to still go launch the satellite? Yeah, you have but, to get it. Okay. You have to get it up there. They just handle the communications back and forth between the satellite that you're launching? Yeah. Okay. Because otherwise you have to have your own radio array on the ground or, you know talk to somebody else who has one so that you can talk to the thing huh. but now you can do it with aws huh and, and that you was probably pay like a per minute of connection time like of a connection window wow yeah so if There's, you want it to oh like its orbit is right. getting communications back between 3 p.m and right okay so you can talk to it during that time and then like pay per megabyte of data transfer or something I bet like it's that. cheap too because it's aws I'm, I'm sure it's cheaper than 
you know, setting up a satellite con- contracting with NASA to use theirs <laughs> or whatever you might do. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. And neat. It just changes the barrier to entry for a lot of companies. Like people want to do, people have a desire to do some really interesting novel stuff. Everybody, like there's a lot of fields that people have these big ideas and they're just limited by cost. Right. Like satellite launching stuff. Like there's maybe a guy that is like into astronomy that wants to launch a satellite with a powerful telescope. So you don't have to worry about a telescope from earth. You don't have a telescope from Mars. What else can you see? But he can't launch a satellite right now. He it's more realistic now. Thanks to the cloud. Well, and that's, that's kind of where, why the cloud has taken off as much as it has. If you look at this huge spike in, like new tech companies, they're all utilizing the cloud because the barrier to entry is so low. You can get something, you can develop something that works at 10 people and 10 million, and you don't do anything along the way. It just sort of keeps working is the idea. Oh, you have 11 people now? Let me sort of give you a little bit extra what you need. You don't have to call and renegotiate your contract with whatever hosting provider you're using or god you forbid just, you're self-hosting and you need right. to buy a new server buy new servers and plug them in real quick and then hope they are all the same and you don't lose a hard drive Ugh. the uh talk <sighs> that i'm wanting to do for nerd night um brings that up in the context of Fortnite, uh because i saw a talk at i think it was reinvent probably or some aws summit thing it was a video that i saw on youtube where the I think he was like CEO or president or creative director or whatever for Epic Games behind Fortnite. Uh, He goes on and he says like, yeah, we've pretty much gone all in on AWS for everything we do now for Fortnite and for a lot of our other projects, we use AWS now. And here's how we use all these services. Yeah. And I think that that might be like a, a novel way to sort of explain the cloud to people because everybody's heard of Fortnite and they understand the concept of like, I have skins in Fortnite. I have to pay for those skins. <laughs> right. So you can explain that in the context of like every time you buy a skin, a Lambda function, like, I don't know. Right. It makes it easy to sort of relate it back to something that they're familiar with. So it's not too uh, abstract. Right. I guess. So could it help. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it was a couple of years ago. I was interviewing for a job at VMware. And I'll say that because what other way can I describe this outcome? Right. (laughs) And one of the questions they asked during the interview is, if your grandma asked you what VMware does, what would you answer? And I didn't get the job on the basis that my response was, if my grandma is asking me about VMware, something really weird is going on. (laughs) And then I answered the question after that, but they didn't like that I said that. Oh, I was like, whatever. Yeah, they're that's lost. A, that's a logical answer. Why is your grandma asking you <laughs> right. about VMware? Yeah, who are you and what have you done with my actual grandma? Yeah, that means somebody's called her on the phone and is trying to sell her VMware. Right. Or <laughs> exactly. is like an IT scam. Right. Man. I'll actually throw out one more because this catches so many so many IT experts even. Uh, there's a friend of mine, in fact, who who works in IT and he's his career has been developing really well. And I asked him... I said, what is the danger associated with plugging in a thumb drive, Mm. right? You find a thumb drive outside and you plug it in. What's the risk? And he said, well, you don't want it. You know, maybe it's going to auto run something. And I'm like, modern OSs don't auto run stuff off of the thumb drive. Yeah. He's like, well, maybe there's some kind of thing on it that like you have to click or something. And I'm like, okay, so don't what like what's what's the risk of just plugging it in? And after going back and forth for a while, his ultimate answer was, I don't know. Because I don't think there is one. 
And I was like, the risk isn't that the thumb drive has some bad file on it. The risk is that it's not a thumb drive. It's a keyboard. Yeah, the hit. Nobody thinks about that. It's a USB device. It can be whatever USB device can be. Mm-hmm. It can be a keyboard. As soon as you plug it in, it starts doing keystrokes. Right? Yeah. Those- it's going to Windows key R and open the run line and do a thing that downloads an executable from the internet and runs it just from plugging it in. Mm-hmm. But most folks never think about that. They think a thumb drive holds files. Yeah. The rubber ducky thing blew me away when I first heard about it too. Right. And it's such a cool way to like show off some weird computing ideas. Cause mm-hmm. yeah, I mean you plug a keyboard into, into a USB, like what's to say this flash drive doesn't just have the components of a keyboard buried in a little plastic case. Right. So, or you think about like, what's the risk of letting a hacker sit at your keyboard? Would you do that? <laughs> yeah. Then don't plug in a keyboard. Don't plug in something that could be a keyboard into your computer. Mm-hmm. I wonder what other ports have that, uh, or a, a functionality that might also be dangerous in that way. Like so, internet or, you know, ethernet port, obviously. Right. Could you compromise a computer through HDMI? I don't think so. Video input could possibly i'm sure we have people on the team who could do it yeah we should get an r&d project around hdmi malicious hdmi cable (laughs) yeah that would be fun (laughs) the monitor of doom for a couple years i was thinking how much fun it would be to put a a chip inside of a ethernet cable that just does dhcp exhaustion so it just waits for 72 hours and then does dhcp exhaustion because you'd never find it it's just like your network's broken now Hmm. how evil would that be just for the sake of messing the internet up or just like because if you leave an internet if you leave an ethernet cable on the floor of a company Mm -hmm. it's gonna get plugged in yeah that's how it works it's unplugged you gotta plug it in right just (laughs) like somebody's gonna use it to hook up a thing at some point in the future so if this thing waits 72 hours and just starts doing dhcp exhaustion after some point new people who come in with their laptops can't get ips and it is going to be like why do we have so many things on the network? It's because most cables of them are going to be able to figure out where it's coming from. <laughs> and they're just going to be like, what is going on? Oh, yeah, because it's just a stray cable. It could have gone all the way on the other side of the, Like if they have multiple offices, they. Yeah. And like even if you were to look at your port, like look at your switch and see that all of these DHCP requests are coming from one specific port, because that's how you're going to find it is looking at your switch. Mm. You go, okay. There's nothing plugged in on it. Like, I'm going to unplug the computer on the other side of this. That computer is compromised. Mm -hmm. Okay. But then it still keeps happening even after the computer's unplugged. You're going to freak out. You're not going to ever think the cable is doing it. You're going to think somehow this computer, even after I've unplugged it from the network, is still making DHCP requests on the network. Well, and even after, if you were hypothetically, the thought crosses your mind that it might be the cable. The DHCP leases are there for a while, right? So you I mean, they're it. easy enough to get rid of. That's right. I guess clear it. But you'd have to clear it in that period that you maybe uh, it maybe occurs to you that the cable is the problem. But that's such a weird idea. Right. Yeah. That would be cool. <laughs> I wonder if you could take it a step further and somehow use that to like man in the middle. Like a stray cable. Oh, yeah. That, totally. Yeah. There's so many weird ways to hack stuff up. Yeah. It would be that. I think that would be a really hilarious thing to do. I love those little devices that get uh, released every once in a while by like Hack 5 and stuff. They Mm -hmm. really do stuff like that, like the rubber ducky, the packet squirrel or whatever Mm -hmm. their other ones are. I have a bash bunny, but like I realized that they're just sort of like 
I don't know. They're like toys, I guess, like hacking toys. Like, okay, I, I know what this is hypothetically capable of, but do I really care to take the time to make a keystroke injector? Like, I don't get to use it right? unless I want to go do evil stuff. Like, <laughs> Well, and most of them are so apparent that it's something that doesn't belong because they don't. Yeah. They don't obfuscate well. A big bolt. Something I've never seen is somebody who just takes a five port switch and injects something into it. So like you just open up the case and plug something on top of it that's that's jacked into one of the ports. And now or it's a hub instead of a switch. So you can see everything that's happening over it or it just does stuff on its own. Nobody's going to think that a switch is doing something malicious. Yeah. Well, and that's why like these supply chain attacks are so scary, too. Right. Because you can't open every single device you have plugged in and rigorously inspect every bit of hardware like those tiny what are they <laughs> rice sized chips on right. these motherboards of these devices like who knows <laughs> and now we've gone full circle as to why i use smart cards <laughs> yep yeah yeah because you don't trust your own computer yeah right. exactly it's so scary yeah that's life uh-huh uh trying to think anything else i really wanted to talk about you got anything on your mind that you came in like i hope we talk about this on Colcast. Not in particular. AWS was kind of the big one. I like yeah. talking about AWS. It's a That's lot why fun. I was like, I got to talk to Brad about AWS, <laughs> especially wanting to get this cert. Like I need some advice from right. the, the sages. <laughs> right. Okay. I guess last question I have, you mentioned SageMaker. Is that what it is? Is it like a certification training thing or is that just a pump? No, SageMaker is their managed machine learning service. Oh, okay. So you can... It, it handles a lot of the the difficult concepts of training models or using models. Um, so you can throw huge data sets at it and have it develop models based on it. Oh, that's why it's called the Sage because it's yeah. got it, it's learned everything. Well, it it is the Sage maker because it creates Sages for okay. specific data sets. See, that makes sense. Okay, right. cool. Well, Brad, thank you so much for coming on. I think we've pretty much exhausted. Yeah, the, thanks, Logan. It's nine. good to finally yeah. be here. Sweet. Thank you guys for listening. Have a good one.